Hey guys, good morning. Um, I gotta say, it is such a blessing to uh, see these young people that I've watched grow up, you know, get married, and it's just, uh, it's just great. It's just great. Uh, I also wanted to say, isn't Larry's series on doing life together just wonderful? Isn't it great? Yeah, yeah, it fits right in with uh, what I'm trying to get across today and other places through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, uh, normally I would not teach until the first Sunday of the month, but we're going to be gone next week. And, and so I'm going to tell you of the upcoming attractions, okay, just so you'll be aware. Next week, Larry will finish off his series on uh, doing life together. Then I think it's the 13th, Barry Feeker from the Rescue Mission is going to be here and he'll preach. Uh, we, we try to have Barry over every couple of years or so just because it's an important ministry that we support. Uh, and then we're going to have a guy named Mike Halpin come back. You remember him? All right. That's a, Lord willing, he'll be back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, I'm at least going to do a quasi thing that Larry did. If you think you'd be interested after hearing the message today and talking about it more, then you let me know, and we'll worry about something for tonight here at the church, okay? Um, last month, uh, we learned how the golden rule encapsulates or makes a, is a capstone on the whole subject of judgment and how we treat others. And within the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, it's also, the golden rule, is the final point of the Sermon on the Mount proper. Okay? And so now, in starting in verse 13, Jesus goes on to the summary, the conclusion, or application phase of the sermon. But before we get to the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we want to take a not-so-brief excursion into an important issue that will help bring the decisions that Jesus presents in his conclusion into a much greater focus. Uh, we will take a step back and look at Matthew 5 through 7 and how it relates to Paul's teaching, particularly his teaching on justification by grace through faith found in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay? Now, this introduction is going to be a bit doctrinal. Now, you may wonder where I got that 75-cent word. It's from a guy named Alistair Begg. You've probably heard him on the radio. He's a great preacher with a Scottish accent. All right? And you notice that neither Alistair nor I use the word doctrine because doctrine is code to a congregation to tune out. And this is so important, I don't want you to tune out. So I haven't used the word doctrine. Got it? All right. Uh, now, I want to introduce you to something that maybe you haven't seen before. You see this piece of paper here? It's almost always the same color. You may think this is the bulletin holder, but this is called a study sheet. And the teachers here spend a lot of time preparing these. And the idea here is not to give you the whole shebang, but to give you a summary. And so it would be really good. In my next few minutes of talking about this doctrinal stuff, I'm going to refer to a lot of passages, but I've tried to hone it down and give you the essence in the study sheet. And so maybe in your home group or in your own Bible study, you can kind of go over this, because this is an important topic. 
We want to start here as believers. In this church, we believe that the Bible should be believed as an integrated whole with the New Testament complementing and clarifying the Old Testament. Now, we believe it all fits together. It's consistent. It's coherent. We believe this because it is God's Word. And the Lion and Lamb statement of belief says that the Scriptures in their original autographs are the fully inspired Word of God without error, absolute in their authority, and complete in their provision for godly living. And if you look at the whole of Scripture, you'll see that instead of providing us just with a textbook of theology or a book of rules or a dictated letter, God inspired and moved men to write various accounts, descriptions, experiences, letters, even visions, expressing the impressions and convictions and experiences of he, each human author. Their styles and vocabularies and their interests differ. Each has their own focus. And God uses each of them to convey His truth in different ways, yet consistently. One way to look at the Word of God is that it is not monochromatic, meaning one color. Okay? Rather, it's more like a rainbow. Oh, this is going to be controversial. Okay? Because the rainbow has been hijacked, hasn't it? Now... It's interesting, I just saw in the news today, or this week, about how down in Kentucky at uh, uh, Anderson Genesis, they've got this big ark that they've built. And they put lights upon it to make the rainbow on the side of the ark. Who'd have thunk it? Okay, and the other people who have appropriated the rainbow are in such a tizzy. I think that would make a great lawsuit. Who's got the original trademark on the rainbow. I think we might win that one. Okay. But, but let's get back here. The rainbow is really a combination of colors that Christians see as an overarching reminder of God's Noahic covenant with us, that He's not going to destroy the earth by the flood. But a, the color spectrum is, is what makes up light. Now, the analogies here are multiple, but the point we're trying to make here is that we must read and interpret the Bible not in a monochromatic way. Rather, we need to blend all the different colored rays presented by the biblical writers into an unbroken spectrum of the light of truth. So, when we think we see an inconsistency between these human authors, we need to dig deeper to gain a better understanding of how each fits together. So one example would be some people say or think that James says you're saved by works. But if you read James clearly and Paul clearly, you see there's no contradiction at all. Now, why is this relevant here? The Sermon on the Mount contains quite a bit of ethical teaching. Guidance for how followers of Christ are to conduct themselves among mankind. But some, based upon a superficial reading, conclude that this instruction, uh, are, these are steps that one must take in order to earn entrance into the kingdom by their merit. So this is kind of a close co cousin to salvation based upon works. Sometimes they call that legalism. All right? 
Now, Paul instructs us that people are saved by God's grace through faith and nothing else. In Romans, he makes clear that we're all guilty of sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. And because God is perfect justice, this presents an obstacle to salvation for all of us that we can't negotiate on our own. So, he sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and then go to the cross and pay a perfect price for our sins that we might spend eternity with him. This was done, according to Romans 3, to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Then, the very next verse, 27, Paul asks, What then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. A law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, uh, a verse that evangelicals like to quote by itself is Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is obviously true, but we asked last month, what does the phrase not under law mean? Now, while some lean to the legalistic side, others lean to the license side and jump to the conclusion that because of what Paul says in that one verse, the law has no value no application in our lives. And they may even label as legalism any standard of conviction of others that is higher than theirs. In this they know not what they believe. If we have no law, we have no moral standard, therefore we have no sin, just lawlessness. And even though Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He clarifies that one cannot, therefore, conclude we can use this as an excuse for sin. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, or other other versions say, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul himself makes clear that salvation is by grace through faith, But it does not allow us to ignore God's moral law and in no way excuses irresponsibility or sin. Finally, Paul explains in Romans 8, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned in the the flesh, sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's only by the possession of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and demonstration of the Spirit in one's life, that one can be assured of, of forgiveness and salvation. Paul explains the role of grace in Ephesians 2. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, those off-quoted verses are absolutely true, and they explain salvation is by grace, not by works of the law. Yet, they are incomplete by themselves. To balance that out, you've got to go on to the next verse, which says, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This reconciles Paul to James. In other words, salvation is not the end point. Okay? While good works do not earn or result in salvation, salvation results in good works. In fact, good works are both the earthly goal and the test of salvation. You will know them by their fruits. Okay. So as, look, as we look back at God's revelation, New Testament believers can see that the law was never intended to save anyone. Uh, in Galatians 3, Paul says, It is clear that no one is justified by the law before God, for the righteous shall live by faith. And as we mentioned last time, the law pointed forward to Christ and his coming salvation. And Paul explains that the law taught the Jews of their guilt in Romans 2 in the same manner that the general revelation of creation around us and the conscience teach or taught the Gentiles of theirs in Romans 1. So, the law served as a stopgap for the Jews because of transgressions, having transgressions been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, that is Jesus, would come to whom the promise of redemption had been made. That's Galatians 3.19. Okay, so, the law, by bringing awareness of human guilt and by pointing to Christ, was designed to lead mankind to Christ so that they might be justified by grace through faith. That's what Galatians 3.24 says, flat out. In short, we don't earn salvation by doing good or by keeping the law because we should be doing that anyway. It's expected of us. Not doing good is breaking the law. It's equivalent to sin. So the man who says he deserves to go to heaven because his good outweighs his bad simply doesn't get it. And this is true of Old Testament believers as well. They were based, they were saved based on God's grace, not by keeping the law, which is totally impossible. Now, for us today, we must understand the nature of people. People generally do not seek forgiveness unless they're convinced that they have offended. They don't want to beg for pardon unless they believe they are condemned. So, in evangelism today, the focus is often on whether the sinner will accept God not whether God will accept the sinner. Often an evangelist today will talk about how God pleases us, not how we please Him. And sometimes today they will use vague concepts of love, joy, and peace. That's all great stuff. But they, do, they tend to avoid the discussions of stuff like justice and truth, righteousness, humility, and faith. You know, because the evangelist today tends to want to make this as attractive and easy as possible. Now, the convert, on the other hand, finds herself entering into a cone at the wide end. Easy to get in. She and others are attracted by the promises of love, joy, forgiveness, peace, eternal life, just as I am, no change required. But, as they proceed... Through the cone, they inevitably hear older Christians talk about stuff like sin, repentance, obedience, discipleship. It sounds a lot like discipline. 
as the cone narrows. And that's the point at which some decide to back out. Now let me make a, a point of clarification here. I am, do not hear me say that you can make a genuine decision for Christ and then lose your salvation. I can only know about my own heart. And I cannot judge anybody else's. Now while we cannot make, we, we make judgments all the time. We've, we've talked about that. And we act toward others based upon what we see and hear. Because only God can judge the heart. Reality is that one may claim to have made a decision for Christ one day and then later back out and say he didn't want anything to do with God. And that may lead us to a conclusion that the decision in the first place was not genuine. Again, only God knows. We do not. But the gospel of Jesus is simply too honest to sucker punch converts. It does not entice people in with promises that it will be easy, that all your cares will vanish and God like a cosmic Santa will give you anything your little heart desires, only to later disappoint you. The point here that we're trying to make is how we present the gospel to others affects how those who are interested and the few who will actually enter into the kingdom. On a totally different level, or maybe not so much, the uh, Leaders at Lion and Lamb encourage every parent who is still engaged in training up children to take the parenting course taught by Sean and Tanya Swenson. And part of that course advises you as a parent to use an inverted funnel, okay? Because if a parent allows Junior to act and uh, do as his little heart desires in a child-centered world, that may well end up in all sorts of misdemeanors and require tightening up just to, keep, just to survive as a family and to keep Junior out of juvie court as a teen. Instead, they will counsel you to start your young with structure and appropriate loving discipline based upon biblical principles so that you can loosen up and allow more liberty as the child matures into responsible temperance, self-control. Now, what is true of young children is also true of young disciples. If one enters at the narrow end, instead, he must shed baggage that those entering at the wide end may hold on to. Let's get back to Paul here, who makes it clear that the law is not a system of brownie points by which we earn salvation, but it's not to be cast aside as worthless either. It always has and always will have a function. What is that function? He says in Romans 3, How now we know that whatsoever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Rather, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law is essential for the function of condemning mankind for its sin and alerting mankind to their need for Christ. So in short, Paul stresses both that salvation is by grace through faith, not the law, and that the law is essential for man to see his need for that grace. Now let's look at Jesus. What Paul is teaching in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, he got from the Sermon on the Mount. 
You see, the sermon starts right off the bat with the demand for those who would enter the kingdom to be poor in spirit, which means they shed their spiritual bankruptcy. Then uh, Jesus says, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass in the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, that's the whole context. The kingdom of heaven. He's teaching that towards which the law and the prophets pointed. He's providing genuine believers with the kingdom perspective and making all painfully aware of their sin and need. And I have no idea what that is. <laughs> okay. Now, I may be showing my age here, but does anybody remember a commercial on TV where the guy would hold up maybe a, a hanger with a shirt on it from his store and another identical shirt from another store at a much higher price, and he said, it's the same thing. Remember that? Some of you, maybe old enough to remember. Okay, all right, well. All right. Uh, the hope here is that we as evangelicals can think beyond the single phrase under law or under grace, not law, which we've heard and misapplied for so long. When it comes to the relationship between grace and law in the lives of Christians, we can say that the teaching of Paul and Jesus, it's the same thing. There's no inconsistency. It all fits together. So, why have we been looking at law and grace when we're supposed to be talking about two gates? That's because the teaching of Paul and Jesus is so that we can better focus on this wrap-up or application found in the remaining verses at my rapid rate, it'll only take another year or so. Okay? Lord willing. We've got to understand that we do not earn or deserve entry into his kingdom by following the previous teaching. Rather, his sermon literally crushes all of our self-righteousness. He turns around and invites us to petition, to pray, to ask. And then he promises us that favor, that grace needed for admission. It's not by slavishly jumping through the hoops found in the Sermon on the Mount, but rather by loving and, in fact, enthusiastic application of the principles. It's not by the letter, but by the Spirit that we so enter. So, it's through this lens or process we receive not only forgiveness, but a personal maturity, a genuine lifestyle along kingdom norms. Eventually our lives will start to sum up the law and the prophets. That is, the logos, the whole Word of God. So, with that brief introduction, we will now start a mini-series about certain decisions that Jesus presents. And our passage for today deals with the gates between which we must choose.
And there, starting in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few will find it. So, as we discuss, this passage starts the summary where Paul, Jesus is exhorting us with the importance of applying, practicing, implementing his teaching in our daily lives. So, uh, his goal of the Sermon on the Mount is first to bring followers to realize their nature or their character as believers. He calls out his people from the world to establish his kingdom, one different from all worldly kingdoms. So he gives us a general portrait of his followers through the Beatitudes. True followers who exemplify the Beatitudes will draw a reaction from the world, sometimes to the point of persecution. Instead of retreating from the world because of that persecution, we are to be salt to preserve it and give light to guide a very, very dark world. Back to him. So, for application, he warns, this means disciples are not to follow the example of the most religious among them at that time, the scribes and Pharisees. From there, he explains how the kingdom, kingdom subjects live life in doing good, in prayer and fasting, before explaining how we make judgments in life. Finally, he caps it all off with the rule of gold, which, if followed, handles all sorts of stuff that we don't have to worry about. Now, at this point, where we are today, he says, in effect, there is the character of kingdom subjects. Live that way. And he pauses, and he looks us in the eye, and he says, so... What are you going to do about that? Now, are we going to sit there and respond, Wow, that was a great sermon. Jesus, right up there near the top. Now, when's the next game? When's the next thrill that I can look forward to? Are we really going to respond by going back to business as usual? The remainder of the Sermon on the Mount is a grand application of his teaching before this. Truth is to be practiced in our lives if it is to be of any value whatsoever. The apostles got it. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount resounds throughout the Scriptures. Larry's teaching on the Gospels and the Epistles is directly from the Sermon on the Mount. We're not to lie, steal, hate, covet, commit adultery. Rather, we're to be kind and tender-hearted. We are to love one another and even others, even our enemies. Now, this is not some theoretical concept. It is to be part of our daily lives. So, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus calls us to consider the life that we should be living. To do that, we need to take, take a step back and look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Let me ask, what one word might describe kingdom character? And his answer, you all got it in your mind? Narrowness. I bet you weren't thinking that one. Narrowness. We've got to recognize that narrowness 
from the beginning at the starting gate and then continue down the narrow way. Now there is another option. An option so appealing, so attractive, so seductive that most will scoff at you for choosing the narrow gate. I try to think of an analogy here and uh, it might look like when they open up the gates at a Royals game with hordes of people rushing in all at once. Except the gate he's talking about is much, much wider. You can, unlike Royal Stadium, you can bring in your own cooler full, full, full of earthly pleasures. Okay? Self-righteousness. Pride. No baggage limit whatsoever. You can bring it all in. On the other hand, the narrow gate is, in some versions, called a straight. Not an S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, but an S-T-R-A-I-T. Okay? Uh, now, a straight is a narrow and often difficult passage, like this is the Strait of Gibraltar. However, you can see it um, on the left there is the Atlantic Ocean, on the right the Mediterranean Sea, and that little tiny area right there between them is the Strait of Gibraltar. And as you might guess, this is strategically a vital area militarily because whoever controls over the centuries the Strait of Gibraltar controls who goes in and out of the Mediterranean Sea and all the commerce with, for all those, all those countries. It's easy to find the wide gate because it's marked with neon lights. And you know those flashing signs you see today on the streets? It's easy because they're marked. But you have to look hard for the narrow gate. It's easy to miss. Jesus says it's as narrow as a needle's eye. So we must decide. Now think about this. The word decision is made up from the root scission from which we get the word scissors, okay? So, and means to cut, right? So an incision is to cut into something. Precision is to cut before, cut accurately. So a decision is to cut away. So when we make a decision, we cut away other options. And in this case, when we come to the fork of the road and we take one path, we cut away the other. So this is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. He says, enter the straight gate, the narrow gate. Follow me in the life that I've called you to in the sermon. So take all that I've taught you to remind you of what it looks like. That gate is so narrow that there are many things that you simply cannot squeeze through that gate. Things that must be left behind. The first thing that Christians have to leave behind is worldliness. As followers of Christ, we are to be unique, unusual, dare I say, weird, according to the world. The Christian life has never been popular. It requires a conscious decision to break with the crowd. By worldliness here, we mean the attitude of chasing after those things that are important to unbelievers. And you can think of many of these. I won't name them all, I'm sure. But materialism is a big one. Wealth, power, status, sex out of marriage, fame. There's many, many more, I'm sure. Now, you and I may say, oh, of course, we agree with that. We understand that concept. But 
it's likely that, at least in some area, this is contrary to our nature. You know, people often say they're opposed to conformity, all the while being conformed to something else, uh, just to a different group. We're all kind of products of, maybe even slaves, to our upbringing, our traditions, our habits and customs, to which we tend to conform or reject and conform to some other group. Parents, teens, you understand what I'm talking about. All right? We all like to be accepted by the familiar, the popular, the in crowd. And Jesus calls us, however, to a profoundly personal decision. Not a tradition of our parents. Yet, we all have to face the reality that I am responsible before God for my own life, regardless of what others do. We've got to see ourselves as separate from the world, from the crowd. Not easy, but essential. This is indirectly the price of admission to the kingdom. So we decide to separate from all others when we enter the narrow gate that will cause us to come face to face with our Father. But that's not all. We also leave behind the ways of the world. This is different than leaving the world. To leave the way of the world, some have tried isolation, like monasteries. However, dropping out of the world like a hermit is not to take the world out of us. The Sermon on the Mount tells us some of the ways, and they're on your sheet, that the world must be, the ways of the world must be jettisoned. Yeah, so like the spirit that demands an eye for an eye. Resisting evil, there's passages on the sheet. Vengeance, that's a big one. None of these responses that Jesus tells us to make are instinctive. But Jesus tells us that if we wish to squeeze through the narrow gate, we must leave the ways of the world behind because there's no room for that baggage. Again, he loves us enough not to induce us into what I think John MacArthur calls easy believism. As we say in the law, the legal profession, he makes full disclosure of the risks and requirements so that all may count the costs. So we must leave not only the world, the ways of the world, but the gate is still narrower. The hardest thing to lay aside upon entry is self. By self, we mean that old man. Anybody recognize this character? Ebenezer Scrooge, before his conversion. Perfect. I love that story. Perfect example. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. Concerning your former conduct, put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Think of this picture. Narrow gate. Two large guys trying to squeeze through at the same time. Can't do it, can you? Okay? That old man with a fallen nature is not welcome in the kingdom. True. We are still sinners as believers, and there is a sense in which we do not completely shed him. Nonetheless, this is what we're told to persistently do put off the old man. Because the, the last thing the old man wants to be is poor in spirit. Because he's born with a proud spirit. 
And if you think about it, how could you possibly love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, and still carry that old man on your back? The old man cannot possibly do unto others as he would have them do unto him. So following Christ requires not just humility, but self-humiliation. He says to us, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the person who walks through the gate is not I, but Christ who lives in me. The gate or the beginning of the Christian life is straight. It's narrow because we must leave certain things behind, including that old man, that old sin nature, our self. However, it is a straight gate and narrow in another way because it is difficult. People think I'm a little off and my kids roll their eyes when, we, when I repeat some of the Marine Corps maxims like pain is gain or pain is weakness leaving the body and that sort of thing. But that's the nature of the Christian life. It's not, a, it's not easy. It's not a life of comfort. We know this because Jesus tells us you find this gate. You know, we see this all over the place. There are always fewer experts than regular people in any field. The more difficult, the fewer people pursue it. And that's not elitism or exclusionism. It's simply the way it is with difficult things. And if you study the Sermon on the Mount closely, you will see that it is a calling to the most difficult life, literally perfection in life. And just one of those difficulties is that it requires suffering and persecution. But Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Not my sake, but his sake. Now, don't we see this on a grand scale? It's recently been determined that Christians are the most persecuted faith group in the world. In the United States, Christians is, Christianity is the only faith group whose beliefs and expressions are automatically censored and sanctioned. And Jesus, or Paul warns us that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution on an individual level. That's what happens when you follow one through the narrow gate, one who was himself rejected and despised by men. So we must be prepared to be misunderstood, even by our loved ones, perhaps, when we pass through the gate. Because it does not admit us as families. It's one by one. So again, full disclosure. We're forewarned. We know to count the costs. Okay? Now, I realize this may sound like a message of discouragement. But let's remember the big picture, the goal here. Jesus came not just to save us from our sins and from the punishment of hell, but he came also to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Yeah, when we decide to enter his gate, it is so narrow we must shed the world, the ways of the world, and self, that old man. We can expect trials and persecution. However, 
What did He tell us to do when that difficulty comes? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we give all praise and all glory to you. And my guess is that most of us here, if not all, have entered that narrow gate. Now we've got to face the consequences. It is a narrow gate and a narrow way. Lord, help us to understand it and accept it gladly and to move on. Lord, help us to be salt within our culture to preserve it, light to others, to draw others to you. But Lord, help us to just apply this in our lives and understand what you're trying to tell us here. Lord, it is difficult, but we desire to please you. We desire to honor you. We desire to worship you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being your children. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.